This is a podcast from the Digital Preservation Program at the Library of Congress. For more information, please visit digitalpreservation.gov. I'm Mike Ashenfelder. My guest today is Michelle Kimpton, Chief Executive Officer of DuraSpace. Michelle, thanks for talking with me today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Let's start with your education. You, uh, you have a background. You're, well, you have an MBA, I know, but uh, you also have a degree in mechanical engineering? Correct. Yeah, I have a degree, a bachelor's and a master's in mechanical engineering. And from what I know about your work, a lot of it is um, in, in the digital realm and with software engineering. So help me understand, is, is there, was that an easy transition? What, what kind of a transition was that to, uh, to software engineering or the world of software engineering? Uh, that was really a life transition. <laughs> the first 20 years of my career I spent practicing mechanical engineering, I was very much in the physical world of making railroad heaters and switches and connectors and electronic devices. And then I was living in Silicon Valley at the time, and of course the, the internet was coming into its own and that whole industry was booming and it was at that point that I really decided that I had had my fill of physical devices and I saw, you know, this really exciting world opening up that involves software engineering and that's really when I made the switch and that was a really a life choice more than anything else because there was so much opportunity and then and ultimately I wanted to be a nonprofit and I saw a sprinkling of high tech nonprofits around the internet starting to evolve and so that was that was really the impetus to move in that direction so now what years are you talking about the internet started heating up in the early 90s but the silicon valley work goes back earlier than that so for me that i made the switch out of the mechanical engineering and working for you know these larger fortune 500 companies in the mid 90s and I started, you know, working in the dot-com industry uh, 1997, 1996, 97, and then I went to Internet Archive in 2001. You had your own company, right? Did you just have <laughs> one company, or can you talk about any companies that you founded? I did a number of companies. Probably the one, mo- well, the one most relevant prior to Archive was eFrames, which was a digital photography site, which was a, a pure dot-com, you know, photo sharing, photo making uh, site. And then when I went to, and I did some other startups, but they were not in this industry. And then when I went to um, Internet Archive, you know, at the time, when I started there, it was Brewster and Brewster Kale and two others, and he was looking for somebody really to build a nonprofit business, build a sustainable nonprofit business. So that was really what I did when I was with him. So in, in a sense, I wasn't the founder, but it was, it was starting another business. How did that come to your attention? How, how would you become aware of Brewster and the work he was doing? A good friend, a good friend of mine uh, was good friends with Brewster, and I had told this good friend who was working for Amazon at the time that I wanted to get into the nonprofit space, but it had to be high tech because I had to really add value with what I knew, which was, you know, a technology background. And he knew what Brewster was doing, and he thought that that would be the perfect fit. 
you know, Rooster was out there trying to figure out how to um, save the internet for future generations, how to archive web pages, and you know, trying to build this nonprofit around um, preservation of the web um, as it was known in 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 the you know in time. Uh, so he made the so my friend made the connection between Brewster and I, and we hit it off, and that was it. And and the MBA, just stepping back a little bit, you know, you talk about nonprofits and for-profit companies. When you first got your MBA, what was your what was your goal there? Did you just want to get better at running companies, or were you thinking of profit? Um, yeah. So when I got my MBA, I was at Raychem Corporation. It was a material science company. And I was working as a mechanical engineer there, making these connectors and railroad car heaters and, and all, all kinds of things. But they were, um, what was great about Raychem is that everything that they sold, they had come up with, they had invented. So there was a lot of innovation, a lot of um, patent work that I had done there. And so it was a really great environment. But what was interesting to me once I had done that piece of it was really that they were taking these products and building businesses, you know, building um, businesses through distribution, through marketing, through um, creating awareness, through expanding markets. And I was in one of these groups that had invented what was called PolySwitch, which is a polymer-based fuse. And we were, we had invented it. And so we were starting a new division to produce these devices and to market them and to sell them. And I was right there um, at the time. And so I got my MBA, um, which allowed me really to jump from strictly engineering into, um, at that time, what was called product management, and then into sales, into sales management, and then into um, a director position. So, and through that, I was able to, you know, really take the product from, an idea all the way through to developing a market and a sales channel to sell it and and all the the aspects of running a business around that and that that was really exciting and I got to also live in Europe and in Hong Kong as a result because they let me try and make this thing work in a worldwide fashion you know not just me obviously there was a whole team yeah, yeah. but just being part of that gave me a really so, so the MBA was really the the stepping stone to kind of step out of the engineering sole solely engineering role, and into a broader business development with exposure to marketing and sales along the way. Tell me about you know your your role in in Europe and in Hong Kong. What was that like meeting with working on an international level and representing your company? Oh, it was amazing. I mean, you know, it was amazing to have that opportunity because. First of all, I was particularly in Hong Kong, being a woman in that environment in technology and going around, you know, working with other companies to not only tell them technically what the product can do and and all the engineering behind it, but also help them set up their own businesses and use cases around this particular technology was it was fascinating because it was always they were always just floored that a woman was actually making the technical presentation and representing the company and so it was it was fun to be part of that uh, and in Europe as well but it was but probably most interesting was to really get a sense of how 
the cultures um, across Europe are so different country to country and the pace is much slower than you know it was in Asia and this was in 1995 and 96 that I was living abroad and you know even then you could see that China was was taking off as a world power. I spent a lot of time in China and Singapore and Malaysia. I was based out of Hong Kong, but I was covering uh, all of ASEAN, which is the Asian market at the time. So it, it was, it was, I think, one of the best experiences of my life, just to really see all, all, you know, to live in two places, two very different places in the world in a very compact period, and to really just get a global view and learn the distinct differences between the cultures and and you learn a lot about yourself you know what <laughs> how to <laughs> how to change your mindset and and how to adapt and you know you have to figure out how to get things done all over again you know anything from how do people wash their clothes or how do you get an apartment or where do you do the food shopping or how do you make a phone call <laughs> um, to how do you work with these people, these different cultures and business. So it was, it was fascinating. Did you learn the languages in any of the places that you lived? Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I was living in uh, Europe, I was living in Paris, so I learned French. Even though it was, um, I was covering all of Europe in my job, so the, the language was English because you know, we were, we were an international company working. I was traveling as much as I was staying home at the time in Paris. But I really wanted to learn French because I was living in Paris. And at that time, um, and it's different now, but at that time it was very hard to get along, you know, to really connect locally if you didn't know the language. And so that was kind of my goal, that I would become fluent in French when I was living there. And I did. So it was a great thing to walk away with at the end of that year, at least being fluent in one other language. And in Hong Kong, there was such, again, I was based in Hong Kong, but traveling all over. And really the only language it would have made sense to learn would have been Mandarin. Because Cantonese, which is, which is spoken in Hong Kong, is really only spoken in the southern part of China. So if you're going to do any language, you'd want to pick up Mandarin, which is mainland China. But, of course, that's exclusive to China. Then if you go to Singapore and Thailand and Malaysia, they don't speak Mandarin. So it was hard to – and all those languages, they're tonal languages, and they're extremely difficult to learn. So I, I, I learned a couple words to get by, but I didn't, I didn't go the same route as yeah. I did when I was in yeah, France. Yeah. And, and as far as um – I'm thinking of the word standards, but I, I don't think that's the right word. But, you know, getting everybody on the same page when you're working with uh, a wide, diverse international group. Mm-hmm. And you, you talked about the, the pace, the different paces, but still you have work to do and you're trying to get projects, make them successful. Did you, you know, learn a bit about getting people to work in a standardized way? Hmm. I think... I don't know if I'd say standards. I think what you ha- what was most important is you, is you had to figure out what mo- what was motivating people to do what you hoped that they would do. You know what was what was kind of in it for them. What was important to them, and what could you provide in return that was of value. And that seemed to be a good strategy to be successful. So for example, 
in Asia, in Hong Kong and in China and in Singapore, they were just really eager to learn any new technology. They wanted to learn it, they wanted to understand it, and then they wanted to try and run with it. And so, you know, doing, so they were very appreciative if, if you would come in and you would train them and you would give them the tools that then they could then go run with this technology. It was very different in Europe. They considered, Amer- you know, people come from America like, much less experienced and cultured. So, they, you know, yeah, I take much, a much different approach. You couldn't come off as the expert. You have to be very humble and you'd have to basically be gracious and, and it, a much subtler approach than in Asia, where Asia they were just dying to take any information you had and spend whatever time it took to really understand it and learn it. And then, so, I think you had to be adaptive. You had to really adjust your goals and approach depending on the culture mm-hmm. that you were working with and make sure that you know it's mutually beneficial. And I, I think that's I care those lessons obviously are life lessons and I think that is why um some of the things that I had learned living abroad is why we were successful in the IAPC. I mean, it was a very similar thing. You have multiple cultures that are trying to do something for the common good, but they each have different organizations they're working with. They're from different cultural backgrounds. They have different opinions of their, you know, what they bring to the party, what the strengths and weaknesses of their organizations are. And you really have to take all of that into account. There's not, there's no one-stop solution or one-stop agreement that satisfies everybody. It's really you know, working through individually, what could you achieve together but not compromise um, each individual's position? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's hard. And, and we'll talk about the IIPC in a few minutes, the, the International Internet Preservation Consortium, of which you're one of the founders. Um, I want to get back to uh, right before you went to the Internet Archive, and not, not to belabor this, but, you know, so you've got this background now. You, uh, uh, this experience in in, uh, in Asia and Europe and mm-hmm. uh, and the MBA and and uh, in Silicon Valley in the mid '90s everything's exploding. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the gold rush, and and that might even be the wrong analogy. There's just an awful lot of potential, and I, everybody saw just everybody in in Silicon Valley was um, uh, on fire with the potential of the commercial internet. So, mm-hmm. what did that do for you? You still were headed for nonprofits, but you know, how, what was that like coming back to to Silicon Valley and seeing all the activity there and and all the potential? Right. When that started to boom was when I was coming back from Hong Kong. So I came back from Hong Kong in the end of '96, the end of '97, somewhere in there. It was the end of 97, I came back from Hong Kong, and I had made a decision to to leave Raychem at that time. I had spent, you know, really my whole career there at that point and done what I felt I I wanted to do, and it was, and I didn't want to run right into one of these startups at that time because I had just been abroad for two years, and so I really went a whole other direction at that point. 
I decided I wanted to get out of the corporate world. I wanted to do something that was totally different, and I opened up a restaurant. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. Where, where was that? It was in uh, a place called Fairfax, which is north of San Francisco. Absolutely, yeah. It's in Marin County. It's in Western Yeah, Marin. it's in Marin County. It's, it's, exactly. it's right on the very edge of nowhere. Beautiful nowhere. Yes, right? exactly. Nowhere. It's where mountain biking was invented, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, I think right after that, just west of Fairfax, is just sheep country, right? It's just, yep. uh, yeah, very nice. Yeah, out to the coast. Yep, yep, right right next to Bolinas. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so when I came back from Hong Kong, I mean, there was a lot of things happening. I met my husband in Hong Kong, and he came back with me, and, you know, I decided to quit the corporate world, and I had been abroad for two years, and I just said, you know, look, I'm going to just really do something totally different for a while. So I opened up a restaurant brew pub with a friend of mine in Fairfax, and that was great. So, you know, again, it was like just throw out everything you know and (laughs) start again. Um, and from that experience, I mean, I really, really learned how to run a startup business. That was my first true, you know, I had financed it. I had gotten the, the funding for it. I had built the restaurant from, you know, ground zero. We had, we had, uh, this shell of a building that we built out, hired the employees, ran the operation, the whole thing. So, uh, yeah, it was really neat. And we did that. I did that for two, two years. Meanwhile, the dot-com industry was really heating up, and I was getting a lot of calls from people saying, oh, you know, you should come here, you should do this, you should do that. And my husband was a software engineer, and so he was really tapped into what was going on as well. And so after two years of, of, of the brew pub, um, I had put in place, you know, a staff and a manager to run it. And then I started a dot-com company with a friend of mine, and that was the photo site I talked about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I did that for a couple years, and it was in 2000, 2000, the VC funding started to dry up, and we knew that it was going to be really tough to get our next round of VC funding. And, of course, we were burning cash. We weren't making cash at that stage. So we landed up finding another photo site, and we merged with them, and we got out. We got out before we lost our shirts, quite frankly. But, you know, (laughs) we we got out intact, and we had a lot of fun in the process. Nice. Yeah. And then it was was right after that that I went into – that I went to Internet Archive. Well, and let's talk about that. I think at this point, any any cultural, just about every cultural institution in the world has some awareness of the Internet Archive and what they do. What was it like when you first went there? Uh, what, what did you and Brewster talk about? What was your vision? What, what, what drew you there? Yeah, so, so Brewster's, you know, Brewster was very passionate about saving the web for future generations obviously. And he was wanting to figure out a way that it could be funded by the public for the public. At the time, it was completely being covered by his own personal endowment. So he wanted to figure out how to make this important enough that it could become something of of national 
attention and funding and how could he increase the visibility. Also, he wanted to figure out how could he improve the collection. So at the time, he was getting what are called crawls, which are the captures of the websites from the company that he had started, which was called Alexa. Alexa was a web, like a web search engine, web crawling company, who was bought by Amazon. But part of the, the deal was that Internet Archive was set up as a nonprofit to receive those web captures from Alexa every six months or two months, I forget the time frame, every two months they, they basically crawled the web, captured the web, and then Internet Archive would take that snapshot and basically hold on to it. And then ultimately, you know, it was available through the Internet Archive site. So he had really two things he wanted to do when I came on board. He wanted to figure out how to improve the web collection, and that could be by working with other web search engine companies to get their content and add that to the existing web archive that he was creating through the Alexa contribution. And he wanted to figure out how to work with national organizations, probably national libraries, to not only potentially improve the collection through their own curation and capabilities, but also help fund the collection. So that was really what I was brought on to do. And when I came on board, it fairly quickly became apparent that even though national libraries were interested in harvesting the web to some degree, they all wanted their own control. They didn't want to just say to Brewster, oh, here's, you know, a million dollars, go go do what you do and we trust you. And <laughs> that, 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 was, that wasn't going to fly. And that's really where the IIPC, as a, as a seed, as an idea, came from. It was, you know, how do we get the national libraries to collectively care about archiving the web where it's not in the f full control of Internet Archive, but Internet Archive is in that group in terms of having some influence and having content, but yet you have every library that's taking control and having a say, and but yet doing it in some collective way. Mm -hmm. And so for Brewster, that was big compromise because he lost some control in the process. Uh, but the net win was that it raised visibility for the archive. It raised the visibility on why archiving the web was important. And ultimately, it increased his ability to raise funding in many different ways, again, because of the increased awareness of what he was doing and the importance of it, just not maybe in the initially anyway in the way that he had hoped to do it, which was more just write me a blank check. There was responsibilities associated with the monies that were given, but I think he's he's actually in a really really good position now versus where he was ten years ago. And, in, and of course, your work with uh, the international libraries, you know, your background in, in um, what you're saying about, you know, being, expressing some humility around the Europeans and, and uh, trying to work with the cultural, um, well, trying to work with all the, the different cultures and not come in and boss people around. We're the Internet Archive. This is how we do things. That must have been quite a challenge for you to get some consensus, to get some buy-in from everyone and, um, and make it work. 
Yeah, I mean, you really had to, well, first of all, Internet Archive wasn't a national library, so they had no clout in this process. And so even though I was one of the founding members, I had to be very careful and really take a back seat um, because we didn't have the prestige or the history or the um, authority to do what the national libraries were doing. Although we could bring a lot of value, and this is what I mean, is you have to figure out what value you're bringing to the partnership and be able to expose that value and provide that value. And so what value we're bringing is that we had, a, we had tons of experience archiving the web already. We, had, we weren't constrained, because we were a small nonprofit, we weren't constrained with legal deposit and many other things. That nas- we could take way more risk than a national library could. Um, in terms of the fuzzy area of legal deposit of web pages, which was wasn't even at all addressed at that stage, Brewster was willing to take the risk, and we were a small nonprofit, so we felt that that was a a risk that we could take. The other thing we brought to the party is we had a very large collection of web materials <laughs> that the other countries were interested in, interested in getting a copy of, interested in in building for the future. So they were interested in our technology, our experience, our collections, and knowing that they could work through us somehow to reduce the risk so that we could kind of be the risk taker. I think coming in and understanding what we brought, what value we brought, and making sure that we limited our role to that value and not try and be some some other role, which was not going to be a benefit to that consortium of national libraries. That's what made it successful. As you're doing this, as you're establishing the IAPC and and expanding the vision of the Internet Archive, how did you attract the engineers that you did? How did it grow to be what it is? So three ways. We grew in funding, we grew in staff, and we grew in data. (laughs) (laughs) And data and, and funding were Brewster's, right, key measurements, so to speak. So in the funding, we basically expanded, we, we started providing services for archiving web content. You know, I offered that through the national libraries. So we would crawl on their behalf. We obviously had a longstanding contract with Library of Congress to do that. We developed the archive at service, so that also brought in funding and content, which was content coming from other curators, which was great. We expanded our areas we had a small moving moving images collection at the time I had joined and we expanded that area and one of the big milestones that happened while I was there was the music collection we got the whole Grateful Dead Grateful Dead had all these what they called tape traders that were people going to the live concerts and they would tape the concerts and the Grateful Dead allowed this but it was for their own for the person's own personal consumption and and use and that whole um, group of folks that were doing these tape trading of concerts, they learned about Internet Archive and basically uploaded all of their concert recordings up to Internet Archive to where they were. Internet Archive was the music portion of the site. And so that really brought a lot of attention and popularity and some funding around that as well. So as we expanded our areas, we were able to expand our funding model because we had many different types of collections we were starting to provide access to and and preserve. We also, um, in terms of the people, 
So now we're at like 2002, 2003. You know, the the dot com market is at least in Silicon Valley is totally dried up. I mean, Google was doing well, but they were an exception. They couldn't hire everybody in the valley, so <laughs> there were a lot of people out looking for work. And a lot of very talented engineers, programmers, software developers, and Internet Archive became really attractive because people were burned by the whole dot-com boom, and they felt like, okay, now it's time, you know, not everybody, but some portion of the population sure, felt sure. now it's time to give back and to do something that's really meaningful and worthwhile that isn't just sticking ads on websites. <laughs> <laughs> so we, I think we appealed to a certain amount of folks because of what we were doing and that they felt that you know, they were contributing back and feeling good about their work. You had a good talent pool and also people who had this kind of fervor for doing good, for altruistic things. Exactly. And all the, all the code we were writing was open source. So from appealing to a developer sensibilities that they're going to develop something and it's not going to be locked away and it will be, you know, it will live on past them. And that was also very attractive. So having that combination of doing something really good in a in an area saving the web which many of us had experienced it as it came to fruition a lot of passionate people about archiving content that we were some of the original creators of that content so let's talk about heritrix heritrix is becoming as far as i know the pretty much standard go-to web crawling tool for large and small crawls. And you created that in a relatively short period of time, is that right? Yeah, that was one when we formed the IIPC. Well, yeah, so within the year that I worked there, you know, when Brewster gave me the mission of figure out how to work with national libraries, figure out how to get more funding, and figure out how to get more content. One thing that was very obvious is that Internet Archive had no way, no capability about crawling the web itself. At the time, it was getting all its content from Alexa. And I felt, boy, that's pretty risky. If Alexa ever goes away, if that agreement ever falls through, we're going to be stuck. And Alexa was crawling under their own directive. We couldn't tell them what to crawl. So I felt if we really were going to, if archiving the web was our you know, was our mission and was, we needed the tool to do it properly. It was critical to our mission to have this tool, which was Heratrix. So within the first six months I was there, I put together a team, hired um, Gordon Moore, who's still there, um, to be the key architect for designing and developing Heratrix. And we had uh, also, as one of my key advisors, was Ramey Stata, who was you know, was very well known in the space. He's one of the VPs at Yahoo now. Um, he helped put the design together. He had developed some of the original crawlers way back. And we worked with the IAPC and Library Congress in terms of what they would like the crawler to do. So coming up with the requirements. Actually, the IAPC was the, the basis for a lot of the requirements. And then we had, that's right, through the IAPC, we had other programmers, mainly the Nordic countries, that came, one from, uh, I believe, Finland and one from Sweden that came to us to work with our developers for a, I don't know, three or six month period. 
and we pr produced the first version of Heratrix. And uh, yeah, it was great because it was adopted really immediately by all the members of the IPC because they really had control of what it was supposed to do and the requirements and they participate in the development of it. And then we, Internet Archive, started using it for Library Congress immediately. So Library Congress wanted election crawls done and other web web curation crawls done. And so we used Heratrix right off the bat for those and they they were very happy with that and they would provide us with instant feedback. <laughs> you know, what was working, what wasn't working. And we were very responsive to change it, mm -hmm. to do what they wanted. Um, and there, there are other crawlers out there and, and were at the time, but uh, yeah. Heratrix seems to be the Swiss army knife of crawlers. You know, it, it's reliable and it has a lot of the right features. Right. Well, it was one of these software projects, which is the way I like to run them, with, within three months we had a piece of software and we were crawling. And then it was, you were kept modifying, kept modifying the code to improve the crawler. You don't build something, you don't write this very heavy design requirement and then you take a year to build it. And by the time you build it, your requirements are already obsolete. Sure, so it's yeah. a very quick design cycle um, with, with real tangible results from producing the software, which was web crawls. Mm. And you had a, a captive audience, which was the IAPC, which was interested in looking at the results and had real input and feedback in terms of what they wanted. So from that sense, it was successful. There was one other crawler that was fairly popular at the time, which was HTT Track. And I would say, you know, the limitations there was that it didn't really have an organization behind it. So if you wanted to modify it or adapt it or have it do other stuff, there was no, there was nobody really taking ownership of that. I mean, there was, there was one guy but he didn't have a lot of organizational support, unlike Heratrix, where you had Internet Archive, who was very interested in the success of this crawler because it was so linked to what they did, <laughs> you know, which was capturing the web. And the other piece of it was HTT Track really wasn't tested at scale. It was really more for a website capture, a single website capture. And we were crawling thousands, tens of thousands of up to hundreds of thousands of websites at one time. So the scale was completely different. So I think a lot of, um, for a lot of those reasons, we were successful. And I think at this point, as the IIPC has grown and continues to grow and more international cultural institutions join and contribute, Heratrix is in place mm -hmm. as, as a reliable tool. So it's, uh, it's embedded almost. If anything better comes along, that'll be fine. But, you know, it's it's uh, a good, reliable tool. Well, it's still being adapted. You know, it's open source, and I'm sure there's still contributions being made to the code and changes being made because it's it's alive. You know, it's a live, dynamic piece of software. Yeah. So that's – and you need to be that with a web crawler because the web continually is changing. <laughs> so you need to be able to adapt your crawler as required. So it, it wasn't, I guess the difference is that in a lot of these open source software projects that are done, it's a grant funded project that writes a specific piece of code that's a tool. It serves a purpose during the grant period and then there's nobody that kind of takes ownership, no organization necessarily. Many times it will just fall off. It won't be maintained by an organization because the project's done and their utilization of that tool is done. Whereas... Internet Archive uses Heratrix to crawl 
now like it did five years ago yeah, when it was yeah, invented yeah. and and it probably will continue to use it to crawl until it is no longer of use and then it will come up with something different now you're in new england you and your family have moved and uh, you're no longer with the internet archive and haven't been for a few years yeah five or six years now tell me about your work with uh dspace when did that start my family and i moved to new england about just shy of five years five years four and a half years ago and that was for personal reasons. We wanted to get back to the East Coast because this is where our family was. We had two small kids. We had spent a lot of time in the West Coast and loved it, but now we need to be closer to family. And we love Massachusetts, so we kind of picked it based on this is where we wanted to live and then figured that we would find work. And when I came out here, I basically wanted to stay in nonprofit absolutely wanted to stay in technology, but there weren't as many opportunities as on the West Coast. You know, on the West Coast, you had, you know, Wikipedia coming to fruition, you had the Open Source Initiative, you had Internet Archive, you had a smattering of these technology nonprofits, but not so much on the East Coast. So I went, I networked with a couple of my friends, one of them being Mackenzie Smith, saying, who was at MIT, saying, you know, what What's around? <laughs> you know, this I wanna stay in the nonprofit space. I wanna stay in ideally working with content of cultural cultural significance, ideally still working with, you know, libraries or archives and preserving or museums and preserving this material and providing access to this material. And she was running at the time the DSpace project, which is an open source software application that allows mainly academic institutions really designed for academic libraries to manage and preserve their research output. That was the, one of the primary use cases. And they wanted to, uh, so she was running the project, but MIT really wanted to look at spinning this project into a nonprofit. So kind of taking it out of MIT as a project and seeing if there was enough there to turn it into a nonprofit get its own funding model and building its community and all that. So they offered me the job. <laughs> they said, do you want to start this nonprofit and take it from a project to a, a nonprofit business and figure out, you know, how to build the community and get the funding and so on and so forth. So I said, yes. I said, you know, it seemed like they were doing some good work. Certainly had a lot of experience in open source projects from Heratrix and running those types of projects, I had experience with preserving and managing materials through the work I had done at Internet Archive. And some community, this was a much larger distributed community, but also a global community. So I started the nonprofit, came up with some funding models, built the community, started to figure out what was, again, what, what value could the foundation add? You know, what could we do that wasn't being done before we existed? And and how do we put process and structure in place to really do that well? And, you know, one of the things that became very apparent was really just creating awareness about who's using DSpace, what they're using it for, where those institutions are located, how do you find them, and just spending a lot of time figuring that out. And come to find out, there were, when I started, like 300 institutions using DSpace now there's, we're just shy of a thousand institutions. Mm -hmm. And just creating the awareness and logging 
you know, on our web on the website, you'll go, you hit the button, who's using DSpace, and there you'll see every single institution that's using it, and you can you can search it by country, you can search it by use case, you can, and that was really a kingpin for creating this community and expanding the community because people wanted to see people like, oh, this person's using it and this person's using it. Well, it seems like a good choice then. <laughs> <laughs> so I did that for a couple years. And I think in about the third year, I mean, it was obvious that the folks at Fedora Commons were doing something very similar. They were providing a, a repository platform to manage and provide access and preserve not just researcher output, but other digital collections and the like. They had a slightly different technology, but we really had a lot of crossover in the use cases and the communities that were using those technologies. And as I was going out fundraising, whether it be through the community or, or writing grants or what have you, people kept asking me, well, what about Fedora? Why aren't you doing something with Fedora? You know, why aren't you guys working together? And so... I called up Sandy, who was running Fedora Commons, and said, you know, we should probably talk and, and figure out what our strategy is collectively. And so we started those discussions, and I mean, the two of us talked a lot about, does it make more sense to work together and not split the market? And if we did that, how could we offer something more than what a single nonprofit could offer? And then we brought the teams together, and the two teams really, I would say, clicked personality-wise, what they were hoping to achieve, the personalities, the energy, and the motivations around what we were doing in the bigger picture, providing tools to preserve and manage this content, you could see that the group was going to work very well as one entity. And so we then very quickly said, we think that there will be a lot more benefit for us to work together versus work separately. Uh, we'll be more efficient, we can raise more funding, we don't split the community, we can look at uh, a more succinct technology package that will bring these communities together. And so we did. So it took, I think we made the decision to do that in January of, uh, what was that, January of 2009, and then by July of 2009, we were one organization. So it took about six months. And that became DuraSpace. And that became DuraSpace, that's right. The name is DuraSpace. It's still actually under the Fedora Commons corporate infrastructure just because to dissolve that was, and start a new nonprofit was not worth the logistical headache. But we call the new organization DuraSpace to represent the two organizations coming together. How did you work with the uh, online storage in the cloud emerge from that? So when we started our discussions, Sandy and I, and plus, you know, the members of the team, one of the exercises was, well, let's, if, let's forget about Fedora Common Software and DSpace Software, and let's just think of what our communities need. And if we were going to start from scratch, <laughs> what type of solution would, and technologies would be, would be looking at to help them do what they need to do? And one of the things that was obvious was that cloud infrastructure meaning compute and storage that was commodity, scalable, virtualizable, was emerging. And it was emerging in a big way. Of course, there was still a lot of hype, but we saw that our communities were paralyzed many times because they couldn't get 
storage or compute resources to do what they wanted to do because of the capital planning required or the IT support that was required. And it limited them not only in doing some of the basic stuff, but it also, because they couldn't get those IT resources, limited their thinking in terms of what might be possible if they had this capacity. So we felt that, you know, the cloud infrastructure, commercial cloud infrastructure, and then probably down the road, private cloud infrastructure as it began to emerge could solve some of these these issues, these barriers, whether it meant expanding their repositories or running preservation support tools on these repositories or providing better access to these repositories, that the cloud infrastructure was going to be an enabler. And that it would behoove us to try and develop a technology that utilized cloud infrastructure just even to show what could be done and to start to work with our communities to use this technology to provide some of these this functionality and services that had been a barrier with inside their local institutions. So from that we started developing a platform, a technology. We did a lot of surveying to our users to see what they thought of the cloud, what they hoped the cloud would resolve, what they couldn't do in their local institution, what they really wanted to do, and took our cues from that in terms of trying to develop a platform. And then very quickly after we had something running in the cloud, we started the pilot program. So getting people to upload their content into the cloud using our technology and getting feedback, what's working, what's not working, you know, where's the value, where is it not panning out? And we're in a very large-scale pilot right now with support from NDIP, which has been fantastic, to really work out what benefit would this cloud infrastructure provide and how to really hone in on what those specific areas are. When did the um, pilot project start? We had the idea last summer, so not this summer, but last summer. We started building the, um, the code last summer. We started the pilot, the very first pilot, in November a year ago. And then we started the, where we just started with three pilot partners. We finished the pilot with them in May, and then we, op- we, ex- we expanded it to another 15 partners. So the, the current pilot we're in right now with the 15 partners, started in May, May, June, and will run through December. Okay. And then with the goal of launching, um, we've launched the platform open source so anybody can download it and, and test it and use it. We're launching it as a service so that actually you could use DuraCloud as a service. We host it, you, we manage it. That's going to start in February. Seems like you have major projects that you develop but also there's always something like a like a vision beyond that in in some way like you're not just reacting to a need you know you're looking for bigger implications so are there any other projects any other things that you're mulling over for um for durable durability of access you know people being able to access their stuff for for a long time are there any other projects that you're mulling over well, I, I think this DuraCloud project is a stepping stone to the, the larger goal, which I think 
you know, one of the things that became apparent when I went from Internet Archive to DSpace is very different architectures for managing and preserving content, each with their pros and cons. So Internet Archive was a big central repository run by one institution and controlled by one institution being Internet Archive. And there is benefit and there is risk with that. Then you go to the DSpace community and you have a thousand institutions managing and preserving their content, but all on their little local machine. So again, benefit and risk to that in terms of, you know, if one institution loses funding or they can't, don't, don't have the technical capacity to do that anymore, potentially you lose all that content. And we've seen that happen in the DSpace community. So one thing I really liked about the cloud solution, and is commercial cloud the right, is it the answer? I don't know. But I do think that cloud infrastructure is going to be ubiquitous. I think that compute and storage are going to be commodity things, <laughs> just like your electricity. I really believe this. In mm-hmm. 20 years from now, you, they, you know, there'll be a bunch of data centers that are providing this commodity infrastructure, and you just you buy what you need, you buy what you use, and that is going to be a huge paradigm shift for all these universities because they're not going to build data centers. There'll be so many folks that just have their data center as a service that they've outsourced and they get it as a service. And what that will enable with the right types of technology in these cloud infrastructures is building common collections across institutions, which is very difficult to do right now. So, you know, if you're on the same infrastructure, you can start to put in place standards, whether it's data standards or policies for managing and sharing that content. And because it's all web accessible, then it can be accessed by many as opposed to accessed by few. And so, so by common collections, is that what it sounds like, that maybe um, a museum in Boston would uh, hook up with a museum in, in Moscow to develop a common thematic collection? Exactly. It becomes much easier if, if your content is stored in common frameworks around the world and in web-enabled infrastructure that you could say, okay, let's pull together all of the pieces that are from Shakespeare. And you have 40 institutions that have some relic artifact that has to do with Shakespeare, whether it's a manuscript or it's a book or it's, it's a website, who knows. <laughs> but you really, be able, you really can start to enable that real collection development in cloud infrastructure where you're not just pointing to the metadata, <laughs> that you're actually having all those objects in a virtual space together and that people can then access them on the whole. And I think that that's very difficult to do right now. And I see, I am starting to see it. I see it through, like a recent NSF grant came out for digitizing all biological collections and specimen and data around biology and, and building a, a national digital collection, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. anybody can access and tag, you can't do that without cloud infrastructure. Mm-hmm. It's almost impossible. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that's how it's going to start. You're going to see thematic collections that are national in scope come together, which will really be interesting because they'll be um, widely accessible. 
and people will be able to do stuff with it. And I think that's where the Sloan data survey has done a fantastic job. But I think you're going to see more of that, and it will become much easier to do because of the cloud technology. Which data survey was that? Sloan, Sloan Sky Survey. They've pulled down, you know, they had that huge telescope, and they pulled down a bunch of data streams, which I think is being hosted at John Hopkins right now. And that particular sky survey is in the elementary schools. I mean, <laughs> you have science teachers pulling it up, and you've got kids, like, naming stars and putting their <laughs> comments on it. And, I mean, it's great. You mentioned commercial repositories um, being a lot more commonly available in a, in a few years. Do you think that that's one of the directions that personal archiving is heading? And, and I ask that because we explore personal archiving. A library is, is putting out information on personal mm-hmm. archiving and advice on personal archiving. But it assumes that somebody actually does something, that somebody actually takes an hour, one night to sit down and back up their hard drive. And mm-hmm. most of us don't. People who are, are keenly aware of it still don't. You know, you have mm-hmm. other things going on in your life. Do you think that these commercial repositories that you're talking about, that it will be like a utility, that that might be one way they benefit the average consumer? They just somehow are tied into your data with your permission and the right kinds of safeguards in place, that they'll just back up your stuff for you. Yeah, I mean, you're seeing it now. And again, it's because of the the cloud technology. So Dropbox, for example. Dropbox has done a phenomenal job. I don't know if you've used it. It sits on your desktop. It basically auto-syncs your hard drive if you let it. And then you can do many other cool things with it in terms of providing access to that information if you want from outside of your own computer. So I think as these technologies become drop-dead easy. I mean, I think that's what it takes. A lot of people don't back up their hard drive because it's a pain in the neck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you've got to set up a server in your basement, and you've got to get the networking connection, and if you're trying to do an auto-sync, half the time it doesn't work, and you have no feedback to say if it has worked. But if you have a folder sitting on your desktop, and you click on it, and you see a mirror copy of your existing desktop, and you know that it's someplace out there, but you don't really care where, Making things really easy like that will have an impact. And then the other thing is that not only do you make it easier, but then you make that information, if you choose, you make it shareable. You know, like I do that with my photos. I use a similar system where I upload all my photos to a virtual space. Mm -hmm. I then provide the link out to all my friends and family. Mm -hmm. And um, it's hosted on some cloud provider somewhere and they with that link they could download the photos they could tag the photos they could upload their own photos and it takes me five seconds and they don't call me and say where are all those Halloween photos of the kids (laughs) 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 and they can do whatever they want with them it's perfect I think personal archiving again when people see the value and it's dropped dead easy then it, it will take off all right have you had enough Yes, I've had enough. <laughs> this is, I don't know if I told anybody about preservation. <laughs> I was supposed to be a preservation pioneer. We really didn't talk very much about that. <laughs> Do you want it? Is there anything burning on your mind about preservation? I would just say the one thing that I've learned through the 10 years that I've been working in this space, which is preserving and managing digital content, is that I find in preservation, and I've, I've learned this from Brewster, is that it's really easy to get 
quickly overwhelmed with how could you possibly preserve this content for hundreds of years? You have all these different formats. You have all those different types of software and technology. And the one thing Brewster taught me is that the best way is just to get started. If you want to preserve something, don't put it off because you don't have all the, the answers and the information. But to take an approach that's pragmatic. And his approach at the time was making lots of copies, lots of copies in different geographic areas, which is the same approach that locks lots of copies, keeps, up, keeps stuff safe. Yeah. And I, I think from what I've seen, that has been a, a fantastic approach. And then in terms of format, do you migrate the format? Lots of discussion and, and papers <laughs> produced on this. And his approach was, if it is a format that has a lot of use, you know, that there's a lot of people using that format, care about that format, they will develop the tools to migrate it. And I think for, not all, but for many of the types of documents that have already disappeared in terms of their ability to read the format, we've seen that. We've seen a migration path produced by people that wanted to, that format to live on. Of course, maybe that only applies to 70% of the formats out there, not 100%. But it's to really think about, not to think about the edge cases, to think about if we're going to preserve this content, what is our best strategy and not to get bogged down with the side cases, but to apply some basic pragmatic approaches. Recently, at the library hosted um, its third conference on storage technology. And I noticed that in the two days of the conference, no one mentioned dark archives. Mm-hmm. That's, That's great. Yeah, it is great. So the idea of lots of copies keep stuff safe is... A, and access. And access, right. right. Keep, people keep the data alive one way or the exactly. other. Exactly. If people access the stuff, they know if there's been bit rot or if something's changed and they sure. care about it. They manage it. And that's, that's what it takes. So, yeah, I'm a big fan of access. Well, Michelle, thanks very much for all your time and thanks for talking with us today. You bet. Thanks for interviewing me. It's been a pleasure. This has been a podcast from the Digital Preservation Program at the Library of Congress. For more information about digital preservation, please visit digitalpreservation.gov.